chapter 11. You'll want to turn there. Heard good things about the preaching while I was gone. Got a letter from a friend who visited the week that Frank preached and said, you know, it's a good sermon when it starts with my friend's cousin's dog. I heard that Mark made people cry. Told one of my daughters and they said, Mark Rest, what do they expect? Your reputation. I heard that Jeff and Dave were awesome, but we pay them to be great, so that's good. So, and I know you think I leave all the hard passages for the other guys. We're going to disprove that today. Because uh, this one's about judgment. It's one of those passages you never pick. But when you preach through uh, the books and it's the next one, you don't skip it. And you have to deal with it. And that's one of those passages we've got today. One of those that we don't get to skip. and going to see what God's going to teach us. So we're in Matthew 11, starting verse 20, just five verses, verses 20 through 24 of Matthew chapter 11. Please read along carefully uh, with me. Listen carefully as this is the Word of God. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You brought us once again to this amazing gospel to learn about and to learn from your son Jesus. And we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. It's hard because we don't respond well to judgment and condemnation. And it's hard because we don't truly understand divine justice and what that means for us. So help us to consider what it means to follow you. And by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. There is a new trade in cyber world, and its entrepreneurs are steadily gaining business. The industry is called identity management. It's a concept emerging from the realities of the Internet. One company, reputationdefender.com, notes in its mission statement, uh, they began with the realization that, quote, the line dividing people's online lives from their offline personal and professional lives is eroding and quickly. And basically they say the notion of anonymity or the false feeling of safety on social networks lures users into what the 
identity management business calls, quote, online disinhibition. That's a great word for saying you put stuff online that you shouldn't. Uh, you know, meaning that people are posting things without regard for personal reputation. And we don't realize that our reputation, good or bad, are now forged in a very public domain. And as many people have discovered, this can come back to haunt you long after that toga party in college is a distant memory. In a survey taken back in 2006, one in 10 hiring managers admitted to rejecting candidates because of things they discovered about them on the internet. Think of how much the internet has changed in seven years. The increasing popularity of social networks, personal video sites, personal blogs. Today that ratio, same survey done this year, is one in two. Hiring managers have rejected candidates because of stuff they found out about them online. Not too long ago, I advised a recent seminary grad to clean up his online presence if he wanted to get a church job. The issue wasn't inappropriate stuff. It was negative, harsh, and critical comments. And I told him I wouldn't hire him with that reputation. Hence the need for identity managers, uh, these people who scour the internet with an individual's reputation in mind and scrub websites of any image-damaging material. And that the demand for these identity managers is now growing as fast as a high schooler's Facebook page. And with the boom of the reputation business uh, in mind, I couldn't help but wonder what the identity man managers would do with the social reputation of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Among the religious leaders, his reputation is forged by this scandal of messianic claims. I mean, would you hire a guy that had, I am the Messiah, really, on his Facebook page? And among officials and politicians, soldiers, his reputation is as an agitator of the people. Follow me, leave everything behind. And beyond those uh, reputations, the most common accusations he faced is, uh, has to do with the company he keeps and the Sabbath he breaks and the food and drink he enjoys. In two different Gospels, Jesus uh, remarks on his reputation as a glutton. In fact, the last verse before this passage Matthew 11, verse 19, we read, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I think if the identity managers went into the Gospels to remove all the accounts of his meals or his conversations with members of society's worst or his parables that incorporated the untouchables. There wouldn't be very much left of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John for us to read. 
And according to the etiquette books and the accepted social norms, both for the first century and the 21st century, the reputation of Jesus leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, he has got a ton of harsh, negative, and critical comments. I mean, isn't this the guy who said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! <coughs> you are like whitewashed tombs. Said that to anybody lately? You're a whitewashed tomb. Which outwardly appear beautiful, but are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Those are some pretty harsh, negative, and critical comments. I mean, who's going to hire this guy with that kind of reputation? there's anybody who has presence of mind to pray for me as I'm preaching, pray that I have enough sense of God's love to preach on God's judgment. Because it's a hard thing to do. The end of this chapter, which we're going to look at next week, we get Jesus at his most tender, his most melt-in-your-mouth sweet. You know, Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. We want that. We love that. I mean, that's the Jesus who sits down with the hated rich, like Zacchaeus, and the hated poor, like the blind beggar, and the marginalized, like the woman at the well, and the little children. And that's the Jesus who's so incredibly approachable and tender and careful, even when talking to wicked people. And yet here in the same chapter, we see him pronouncing woes. Woe to you. Think about that word woe. The trouble with the word woe, it's kind of an anachronism in English. I mean, we don't use it anymore. It's almost a comical word. If somebody says woe to you, it's like the way of being dramatic. This is an English word that translates the Hebrew word for curse. This is Jesus putting a curse on three cities. It's Jesus standing in judgment. The Jesus who says, come to me, I'm gentle and humble, is the same Jesus who says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. And the problem we have with this and this kind of passage is how can great wrath and merciful love come from the same heart at the same time with the same intensity? And there's a lot of people who struggle with this whole idea. And I'm going to deal with the whole passage together. I'm not going to go through it uh, verse by verse like I normally do and deal with this topic that people struggle with. Because people today will tell you, and you can read this, uh, lots and lots of places. If God is a God of love, he doesn't send people to hell. And if God is a God of judgment, he can't be a God of love. I can't reconcile those two things. And yet the Bible, and I'm going to try to show you this today, insists that not only is God 
a God both of love and wrath. And not only do those two things not actually conflict with each other, but they establish each other. One without the other is nonsense. One without the other is meaningless. If you somehow try to surgically remove the Christian message of the judgment of God, what you have left is nothing at all. And I'm here to tell you that the reason that God's a judge and the reason God is loved, the reason he's just, the reason he's a savior, the reason these things don't conflict is because they arise from the same source, his goodness. God's a judge because he's good, and he's a savior because he's good. Now, anybody in this room who's ever tried to deal with uh, someone who's destroying themselves, you can see them making horrible decisions and has horrible consequences, and you're trying to help. Well, you'll learn very quickly, the opposite of love is not wrath and judgment. The opposite of love is hate. And if you love somebody, there's going to be wrath. If you love somebody, there's going to be anger. And the real question is, how do I remove that self-destruction? How do I remove the evil? How do I remove the delusion? How do I remove the habit from the person without removing the person? Anybody who's really good, who doesn't just love out of selfishness, anybody who loves out of goodness, is going to experience anger. And what I'm trying to tell you is that the Jesus of this passage and the Jesus of the next passage is the same Jesus. They go together. You can't have Jesus the rest giver without Jesus the judge. They're meaningless apart from one another. And you'll never understand either and you'll never understand what is real rest for the soul if you don't understand the judgment of God. And what I want to show you briefly as we go through this passage is a few things about divine judgment and what it really means. So let's take a look at judgment. By the way, this issue of God's judgment is a lot like the rest of the Christian faith. So much of the Christian faith, when you think about it, is very consistent. But when you first hear it, it sounds counterintuitive. You know, it's just the nature of Christian truth. When you first hear it, you say, what? Jesus says, if you want to rise, you must fall. The way up is down. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. The first must be last. It strikes you as counterintuitive. Right here, do you want rest? Do you want love? Do you want melt-in-the-mouth grace in your life? You have to understand that God's a God of judgment. I didn't put these two passages together. He did. You have to understand that his justice and his love go together. It's counterintuitive, but I want to show you that it's very consistent. So the first thing we learn from this passage today is the reality of judgment. The reality of judgment. That's the first blank. Not so many blanks uh, today. You know, it was getting late. So there's not so many blanks. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then verse 24, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities. Woe to you. 
This idea of God's judgment has largely been rejected today. There are plenty of people who don't reject the idea of God, but they reject, reject the idea of a just God. They reject the idea of a God who's looking at us all the time and weighing everything that we do and standing in judgment over it. That's rejected. A good example, Albert Ellis, very prominent uh, psychologist, a uh, very famous psychologist. If you've studied psychology, you've probably had to read him. He practices in New York City. He practices rational emotive behavior therapy. That's a specialty. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds pretty serious. And he writes regularly in the Journal of the American Psychological Association. And in that journal, he said, not all religion is mentally unhealthy. Good to know. I'm glad you're... He said, not all forms of religious faith are psychologically unhealthy. Good to know, if he'd only stopped there. Because he went on to say that the kind that he thinks is psychologically unhealthy is what he calls devout faith. It's only unhealthy if you really believe it. And what he meant by this is if you're so sure that you understand God's will, that you would refrain from doing things that you want to do simply because God doesn't want you to do it, you're limiting your choices, you're limiting your options, you're limiting your happiness. If you fail to do something simply because God doesn't want you to do it, you have a rigid understanding of God and faith. And I thought about that. You might as well chuck marriage, too. Because half the things I don't do that I want to do are simply because she doesn't want me to do them. It's the way any good marriage goes. I mean, there's a lot of things she wants to do, but she doesn't do them because I don't want her to. And to compare religion to marriage and to imagine that religion, a relationship with God, using the same common sense basis as marriage, saying that's mentally unhealthy shows how deeply repulsed people are to the idea of a God who's a judge. A God who stands there and looks at you and says, this is right, this is wrong. If you get rid of the idea of God, you get rid of the idea that there's an external objective standard by which you're judged. And by the way, most secular thinking tries to get rid of those then there's nothing higher than my heart to judge my behavior. And you can read that. I looked up, you know, follow your heart, and there's like a million hits on people that say, just do that. That's stupid. Sorry. I had something nicer than that written in there, but it's just dumb. Because you think about it, I mean, people today will talk about, you know, there's no judgment. We die, we go into the light. I have no idea what that means. There's no heaven, we just go into the light. And under those circumstances, if you die, you go into the light, or even if you just rot, there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, the idea of an external objective standard of right and wrong is meaningless. And therefore, there's nothing higher than my heart. Only I can determine what's right for me or what's wrong for me. Nobody else. 
And I'm sure you've heard that because that's the culture we live in. That's the prevailing view. But that goes against reality. It goes against intellectual reality. It goes against emotional reality. Deep down, nobody really believes that. Woody Allen is famous for saying, who are you to judge what my heart tells me? But the fact is that almost all of us, even people who've rejected the idea of judgment, believe there are some things that are just wrong, regardless of what your heart says. I mean, people will tell me they believe that traditional Christian standards of sexuality and gender roles are oppressive. And they usually say as those standards are based on a harsh judging God. They say, I believe in a God of love accepts everyone you can't tell somebody else what's right or wrong for them sexually that's something their heart has to tell them which elevates their heart above god but that's they don't usually realize that but if you look at it and your heart's telling you to be biblical and to be faithful and to follow the scriptures and so i'm going to follow my heart which tells me their behavior is wrong and i denounce sin because my heart tells me to then I'm oppressive. I'm told I'm wrong for following my heart. So then if I'm not allowed to follow my heart, I want to know what's higher than my heart that's sitting in judgment on me. What is that standard? Where does it come from? If I decide I want to denounce you and I want to hurt you and I want to call you names and you tell me that's oppressive, where do you get that standard by which my heart is being judged? And people can't answer that question because they don't know. Because deep down at the gut level, viscerally, everyone believes in some form of divine justice. If there's no God, there's no judge, there's nothing higher than your heart. And yet everybody knows that there is. There's a justice that we all have to deal with that's higher than our heart. There's a bar before which we'll all stand. We know that. It's just silly to think otherwise. It's emotionally and intellectually incoherent to deny that. That's the reality of judgment. Deep down, you're not the only judge in the world of what's right and what's wrong. But there's a basis for judgment in the scriptures too. And we see some of that here in this text. There's a basis for judgment. Jesus says a pretty amazing thing. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. He goes on to say the same thing for Capernaum. Here's what he's saying. He, he, he finishes our passage by saying, It would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So let's focus in on that. Sodom's a fairly famous city in the Bible. Maybe it wasn't judged for the reasons that you think it was judged. If you go to Genesis 18 and 19, we see God judging the city. And there you read what most people know. It's a fairly famous story that's come into our culture. Sodom was judged by God for sexual immorality and licentiousness. However, you may not know that also in the book of Ezekiel, prophet Ezekiel 
uh, records that God says in Ezekiel 16, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. It's interesting. Many people think Sodom was judged for sexual immorality, which it was. But it was also judged for social injustice. If you think about it, sometimes it seems like America is divided into two groups. Some say, hey, there's no standards for my sexual behavior, but social injustice is the worst thing in the world. And then there's other people who say, it's very important that we have traditional sexual morality, but they don't care about social justice. Sodom was judged for both. I have to wonder if any Americans will be left standing on Judgment Day. Jesus goes further and he says, in effect, Sodom is judged on the basis of the law, the basis of God's righteous standards revealed in the Old Testament. But Capernaum has to deal with me because I was there. I did mighty works there. They saw them. And Christ teaching an example here, and I'm not going to get into all the mighty works, or there's quite a number of them. But it gives us a moral vision that you can't find anywhere else, not in any other teaching, any other philosophy, any other religion. Because he goes to the Old Testament, he starts and then he expands it. Remember he did this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And I'm paraphrasing here. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say you shouldn't hate, you shouldn't resent, you shouldn't ignore, you shouldn't be cold to people. You shouldn't even resent them. You've heard it said uh, that you shall not steal. So you shouldn't even envy. You shouldn't be discontent with what you have. You should be so grateful for what you have, you should never be discontent. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's not all. He went on and said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. I say, love your enemy. Bless them who hurt you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And when you listen to this kind of teaching, you can't help but say, you know, wouldn't that be awesome if the world was really like that? You know, that's what human beings should be like. Who's going to deny that? Who's going to get up and say, I don't want a world like that. Not too much love for me. We look at that, but then we have a moral problem. Because anybody who's ever thought about these things and these kind of ideals and, and who's uh, read what Jesus has said has a problem because the very second that you admire what Jesus tells you about what a human being should be like, the minute that you admire what Jesus shows you in his life of what a human being ought to be like, you have instantly judged yourself. Because you immediately feel judged. <coughs> You immediately say, wait a minute, you know, the commandments are hard. This is pretty impossible. I mean, I look at Moses, I look at Abraham, even if I look to other religious leaders, Buddha and Muhammad, you know, it pretty easily feel that you're falling behind. But when I look at Jesus, I am cut off at the knees. What he says is impossible. 
And here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. I want you to think about this. Your real problem, all people's real problem, is a very general level, not even conscious in most people's mind. Your real problem is that deep down at that gut level, you know you deserve judgment. I mean, look at your depression, look at your anxiety, look at your deception, look at your self-centeredness, look at your workaholism, look at anything. The reason for your problems is underneath. You know you deserve judgment. You're not measuring up. And somewhere out there, there's justice. There's something higher than your heart. And you're not even living up to the standards of your own heart. And you know there's something higher than your heart. That's the reason we have all these problems and all this anxiety Because we know we deserve the judgment of God. And here's what happens the minute you meet Jesus. And this is good good and bad. Because what happens is that Jesus makes that unconscious sense of judgment conscious. I mean, if if you've never before felt that you deserve to be judged by God, you will when you meet Jesus. If you don't feel that way, if you never stand there and say, You know, look at what I should be. I have no claim on the love of God. I have no reason to complain about what's happened to me. I know the evil in my life. I know the wrong. I know the mistakes, the errors, what the Bible calls sin in my life. And if you've never said that, if you've never thought that, then you've never really seen Jesus. You've never really listened to his teaching. You've never really grasped what he says or what he does, or who he is. Because the way you really know that you've seen Jesus is when you really, really read the text. You really read what he says, and you see who he is, and what he does, and what he said. Not just what the church has told you, not what some book has told you, not what I've told you, but what he really is. And that unconscious sense of judgment becomes conscious. You really have No claim on him at all. No reason to demand God's love. But then you realize that's what God wants for you all along. He wants you to come to the end of yourself. He wants you to realize, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned this. I can't earn it. He wants you to come to the realization that there is nothing in you that can get God to love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. Jesus says, I'm the judge, but I'm the judge who was judged so that I can be both just and justifier of those who believe in me. On the cross, both the wrath and justice and judgment of God and the love of God perfectly coincide and brilliantly shine forth. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the perfect satisfaction of God's justice. Your shortcomings, your flaws, those flaws you feel, you know, when you get near somebody who's a good person, and the flaws you especially feel when you get next to Jesus, who's a perfect person. All those flaws are paid for on the cross. God's justice came down and devoured the evil. On the other hand, when Jesus died, it's a perfect expression of his love because he did it for you. He did it as your substitute. He's saying, you better not take justice out of the gospel or you got nothing left. If you believe you have a claim to God's love, God's love's not going to transform you if you think you deserve it. If you come through life saying, you know, I got, 
I don't understand why God hasn't done more stuff for me. You know, I'm better than most people. I'm more moral than most people. I'm better than Hitler. It's a pretty low bar. But if you feel that way, and you hear God say he loves me, you're like, sure he loves me. He should love me more. And you will never be changed. The people whose lives are changed or revolutionized, people like Paul, Wesley, Calvin, Luther, who've changed the world and taken the world by the throat, who've had that kind of courage and that kind of joy, all understood they had no claim on God's love. They understood his judgment, and they understood that he took his own judgment. You understand, until you understand the judgment of God, you're not going to understand his love. That love that comes when you know Jesus has paid it all. That he's judging you, but then he took that own judgment upon himself. And that's why you can't separate judgment and love. Because if he doesn't take that judgment on himself, there's no love left for you. You know, and, and here's what a Christian is. Christians struggle with this all the time. I've been sharing this a lot lately. Christian is somebody who realizes the sin underneath the sin. There's always a sin underneath the sin. Doesn't matter what you say. I'm doing this thing. As soon as you ask, why are you doing that? You're getting to the sin underneath the sin. But for most Christians, we don't believe that God loves us. You don't believe that God loves you. You can't believe it. That's the reason for your anxiety, your deception, defensiveness, why you can't take criticism. That's how a Christian understands it. Somebody who realizes... Up until I grasped the gospel, I never believed I was forgiven. At some deep level, I still felt judged. And all my problems come out of this sense of feeling condemned and judged and knowing I'm not living up to the standards. And when you finally see the judge who was judged himself, who took his own judgment upon himself, and he's the just and the justifier of those who believe, and you realize you're forgiven, and you realize there's no condemnation left for you, then you can rest in his love. Until you understand that God really is the judge, and no one's going to get away with anything, and everyone will be held accountable, and every person in this room, either Jesus will pay for your sins, or you will pay for your sins. Forever. There's an old, old movie from 1948 called All My Sons. It was a famous movie at the time. It was based on a play by Arthur Miller, a world-renowned playwright. And it starred the great actor Edward G. Robinson. In the movie, his name was Joe Keller. And he had a manufacturing business. And during World War II, he realized he had produced a set of parts for the Air Force for their planes that was defective. But he sent him to the Air Force anyway because he knew if he didn't send him, he was going to be ruined financially. And he hoped for the best. But those parts were used and put in airplanes. And as a result, 21 young pilots crashed and were killed. They came back to the manufacturing plant with policemen in handcuffs. And then Edward G. Robinson lies about it. And he gets the policemen to believe that his business partner is to blame. And they arrested his business partner and took him off to prison for the rest of his life. 
Only Edward G. Robinson and his wife knew what he had really done. And then a very young Burt Lancaster, who played Robinson's son in the movie, comes along, and he starts, years later, starts to put all the evidence together. His father's grooming him to take over the business, so he starts going back to all the old records. And he pieces the evidence together that his father's guilty of killing all those people through negligence. And furthermore, he knew about it. He knew what he did. And he lied about it, covered it up. And so he goes to confront his father with the evidence. And his father won't listen to him. He says, who are you to judge me? Who is anybody to judge me? And his wife chimes in and says, you know, maybe you need to admit that what you did was wrong. He says, wait a minute. Shall I let him take everything away from me that I have worked for? Would that bring any of those pilots back? Should I have told the truth under those circumstances? Hey, I did it for the family. Nothing higher than that. I did it for you. I did it for my son. <clears throat> There's nothing higher than that. Who can judge me? Nobody can judge me. Who can say what I did was wrong? Who's to say? And in the movie, his wife looks at him, played by an old actress named Maddie Christian. She says, Joe, maybe there's something higher than family. Maybe there's something higher than your own heart. And then Burt Lancaster shows up and gives his father a letter that proves that his brother, Robinson's other son in the movie, was in the Air Force during World War II and died in a plane crash, which they always knew. But the crash had been caused by the faulty parts that his father had made. And he was a victim of his father's negligence. And he died. And the evidence revealed he died because of what his father had done. And as Robinson reads the letter, justice breaks over him. And he suddenly realizes there's right and wrong and a standard higher than his heart. And by breaking that standard and trying to keep his heart intact, he had broken himself. And there's a standard higher than his family. And by breaking the standard to keep his family intact, he'd broken his family. And at the very end of the movie, you see a broken man walking up the steps, thinking about all those young pilots who died, looking at the letter, realizing what he'd done. And as he walks up the steps, the last thing you hear him say is, they were all my sons. Here's the problem. We know, in spite of all of our modern philosophy and psychology, that there is something higher than our hearts that will hold us accountable for what we do in our relationships, for what we do with our sexuality, for what we do with our tongue, for what we do with the gifts and resources we have. There is judgment. There is justice. There is a fair, impartial, pure set of eyes watching us. Yeah, Joe, there's something higher than your heart. There's something higher than your family. There's divine justice. And the Bible tells us that God, having created us, put us in this world, held us accountable for the things he gave us. <coughs> I mean, everybody knows that. If you have a great job, you're given a big budget to manage, and all these people, and all this money to use, what eventually will happen? Sooner or later, you'll get audited. And what does an audit mean? 
You have all these great jobs and all, all these people under you and all this money. And then the audit comes in. They want to know if you've discharged your duties well. Have you spent the money properly? What have you done with what you've been given? Audit, judgment. Same thing. And you read these hard words of Jesus and you begin to realize you're not wise enough to be the judge. You don't need to be the judge. God is wise enough. He knows what people deserve. He knows what they've gone through. And God is good. No one's going to get away with anything. And as soon as you understand the judgment of God, you can relax. If there's anybody in this room who's bitter and angry, can't forget what somebody else has done to them or said to them, it's because they don't really believe that God's the judge. They're trying to be the judge. Way down deep, we all believe in justice. And if we don't think there's a God uh, who's going to be the judge, then we're going to be the judge. And how do you escape from that? How do... How do you escape the judgment of God? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, what did they fail to do? They failed to repent. I mean, what does repentance look like? I mean, a repentant person is one who realizes my whole philosophy of life could be wrong. I mean, I don't like the minister. He yells a lot, and I'm afraid of this whole religion thing. But I, I sense being condemned, and my philosophy isn't working. And yeah, I've been religious sometimes and not religious other times, but I've never been able to get rid of that sensation, that feeling of judgment, of condemnation. Something's wrong. And you could be a secular person with no church background. You could be a person raised in the church, but until you realize that your working philosophy, the thing that gives your life meaning, is something other than the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, you're actually going to go through life feeling this sense of judgment and condemnation. A repentant person says, you know, I know there's something wrong. And I know something has to change. And they get a little closer to Jesus and read what he says and who he is and what he's done. And, you know, a repentant person doesn't turn around in one fell swoop. They begin to study. They begin to think. They begin to reflect. And as they get close to Jesus, that unconscious sense of judgment becomes conscious. And yet they also begin to realize what he's saying that Jesus is saying, I don't want you to suddenly get more moral. And I don't want you to suddenly get more religious. I want you to know how much you are loved. And I want you to stop trusting in yourself. And I want you to stop trying to be your own judge and stop trying to be your own savior. Because it's hard to be your own savior. Look how hard you have to work to be good. And it's hard being your own judge. Look how hard you have to work to be right. Just stop. Let me be your savior. Let me be the judge of the, of the world again. Do you want rest? Do you want love? Do you want melt in your mouth, grace in your life? Then you have to understand that this God is a God of judgment. You have to understand that his justice and his love go together. And it's time to recognize that the judgment of the king reveals the love of the king. And that's what you really need. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together.
Our Lord and God, thank you that you have given us a king. And thank you that we can see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. That we would see him as you want us to see him. That first of all, he's the judge of all the earth. And secondly, that you sent him to be judged. So that by having faith in him, we can be received as your adopted sons and daughters. Give us the assurance of faith that comes from knowing our judgment is behind us and the unconditional love of the Lord is what lies in front of us. We know we can only be there by faith. So Lord, I would ask today if there's anyone here who comes not trusting in Christ, that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself. By grace, through faith, in Christ, that they might embrace Jesus as the loving King of their life. And help us, all of us, to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Receive God's blessing. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. God bless you. It's good to be back. We'll see you next week.